Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 to 28. Please have your Bibles open there as we return once again to our Hebrews series. Last week, when we came back to Hebrews after three months away from it, we spent some time at the start of the sermon reviewing a few critical points. The first and the most important of those, I think, was a review of what I called, have called through this series, the heartbeat of Hebrews that we have a great high priest seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the heartbeat of Hebrews, not least because that's the theme of the large central section of this written sermon that began in chapter 4, verse 14, and will continue until chapter 10, verse 25. And last week I said that all of Hebrews connects to that heartbeat, in one of two simple ways. We can ask at almost every point in this sermon, number one, what does Jesus being high priest mean? And number two, what does Jesus being high priest mean for our lives? We are in the part of this sermon that's focused on question one. What does Jesus being our high priest mean? If you were to ask me what I think the primary point is that the pastor makes concerning Jesus as our high priest, here's what I would say. I would say it's that Jesus is our high priest because Jesus is the one who finally and fully did away with sin. That that's what Jesus had to do in order to become our high priest. And the primary reason I can say that is because of where our high priest is now, right now, today. It is not incidental that I include in the heartbeat of Hebrews not only the fact that Jesus is our high priest, but where he is as our high priest. From the beginning of Hebrews, the pastor has emphasized where Jesus is now. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, the pastor wrote in chapter 1, verse 3. With that heavenly scene then becoming the setting for the high praise of the sun that fills that opening chapter of Hebrews. Seated there, he is now crowned with glory and honor, chapter 2, verse 9 says. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, the pastor writes in chapter 4, verse 14. The importance of the location of our high priest came into even sharper focus beginning at the end of chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 19, the pastor writes, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then after considering that connection with Melchizedek that comes from Psalm 110, what was the summary point that the pastor made once again? In chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, he says there, Now the point 
in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. From the beginning of his sermon, the pastor has been increasingly focused on where Jesus, our high priest, is. He's with the Father in the inner place, behind the curtain, in the true tent. He is in the holy places. Why this focus on where Jesus is? Well, in part, at least, it's because the pastor knows that that's where we're going to. The conclusion of the large central section of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, is not now far off for us in our study. Just listen to how the conclusion of this section begins. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we, meaning the pastor and his faithful hearers in the first century, and every woman and man of persevering faith ever since, including you and me, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. That's where Jesus is now. We're going there, the pastor's saying, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We are to live always by faith now as we move towards that end. And I know that you're so used to hearing me say this that it has probably lost its potency. But what is the end for us? What is the goal? The salvation of which Hebrews speaks well, I actually haven't read this part of Hebrews, at least not very often, so let me attach a spoiler alert to what I'm about to say. But listen to how the pastor puts it in chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. Here's the end of it. Here's where we're going, Christian. Chapter 12, verse 22. You have come, pastor writes, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel, you and I are going to God. We will enter the holy places. This is salvation in Hebrews. It's life with God in a place. This morning, the key question that's answered by our passage is, what does it take for that to happen? for us to go there, for us to go to God in the end, because whatever it is that that takes, that's what our high priest has accomplished for us, you see. That's the point.
Look now in Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 23 from our text this morning. We'll jump in there. Because as I read it, the main point of verses 23 to 28 of Hebrews 9 that Matt read earlier in the service is verse 23. Not because it's technically speaking the logical main point of the discourse in this section, but it is, I think, the theological main point the pastor is making, so I want it to be mine as well. Verse 23 says, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. To condense that, main point verse even further, the point really could be the beginning and the end of that verse attached to one another. Christ has entered on our behalf. Let's think then about both parts of that. First, Christ has entered. We've already seen how that's what the pastor has been on about from the beginning of this sermon. Jesus Christ has entered heaven itself, the dwelling place of God, the holy places of which the earthly tabernacle was but a copy. Do you remember when we talked about that in Hebrews chapter 8? Speaking there in Hebrews 8 of the priests who offered gifts according to the old covenant law, the pastor wrote in Hebrews 8 verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The pastor then referred to an incident from Exodus chapter 25, if you recall. He wrote, For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Quoting there from Exodus chapter 25. And we said in our study of Hebrews 8 that the idea there isn't that Moses built some kind of miniature replica of what he saw. It's not like the micro-machine version of heaven. It's not a copy like you get it from a copy machine in which it looks precisely the same, just maybe reduced in size. No, in making everything according to the pattern Moses was shown, the point, I think, is that Moses saw the end goal that Moses saw that to which the symbols of the earthly tabernacle and the sacrificial system it entailed were designed to point. So that when the Lord would go on in Exodus to describe in precise detail what the tabernacle's design would be, Moses would understand. And Moses would therefore be careful to execute the tabernacle's construction in total compliance with the Lord's instructions. That's what the pastor was talking about in Hebrews 8, and that's what the language of our passage is picking up here again in chapter 9. Christ did not go into holy places made with hands. That is, he's not a high priest who enters into a sanctuary built by human beings to represent or prefigure or anticipate or point to something else? Of course not. He enters heaven itself, the actual dwelling place of God Almighty. Why? Well, we'll come to why in a moment. 
The pastor tells us explicitly why Christ would do that at the end of verse 24. But before we proceed to that, that point, let me pause. Let me insert something here that's subtle. I think it's subtle, but I believe it's essential. Essential to understanding the text and therefore essential for thinking about the nature of salvation itself. I think that you and I are liable to misunderstand the point of the contrast that's being made here in verse 24. Given the way I've explained Hebrews chapter 8, this may already be apparent to you, but in the contrast the pastor makes in our text between the holy places made with hands and heaven itself, which Jesus has entered now, it would not be correct to say that the point of the contrast is that the earthly sanctuary was physical, or better put, phenomenal, while the heavenly sanctuary is spiritual or something, as in ideal or somehow non-physical. In other words, when the pastor describes the earthly sanctuary as being made with hands, his point, the contrasting point, is not what the sanctuary is made of. Physical materials like wood and like gold and like fabric. The point is that it was constructed by people to be the copy of the heavenly sanctuary. Listen again to how the pastor puts this back in chapter 8, verse 2. He says there, we have such a high priest, a minister in the holy places, and then listen to how the pastor defines that in the next phrase, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Do you see the point of contrast there? The point of contrast is in who set it up. And note this carefully, the true tent, and we're talking there about heaven itself, the true tent is set up. The Lord set it up. Heaven is part of creation, brothers and sisters. We're talking about a real place here. We're talking about a place that, like the earthly tent, had to be set up. In other words, though, I'm no philosopher, and so I am bound to get the nuancing wrong, and there are people at Christ the King who could do this better than me. This isn't Plato, okay? What I think I see clearly is that the contrast here is not between something physical and something phenomenal, that for that reason is somehow a subpar approximation of something else that is true because that something else is an ideal, non-phenomenal form or some such thing. No, what makes the heavenly sanctuary true is the fact that it is the place where God actually dwells, you see. And the pastor says God himself set it up. In other words, to say Jesus entered heaven itself does not mean Jesus entered into some kind of purely spiritual place, if by spiritual you mean non-material necessarily. It can't mean that. Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father as a resurrected man. Now, of course, 
There's not a simple one-to-one -one correspondence between how you and I understand and experience physicality in this life and how that is to be understood and experienced in the next. I mean, the resurrected Lord could pass through locked doors and eat breakfast. There are dimensions of reality you and I know little about, but please don't proceed here along a line of thinking that suggests somehow that the goal of salvation is to escape our material existence. It isn't to escape life as we know it under the dominion of sin that leads to death. Yes, thanks be to God that we are leaving. But the Bible would have us understand that eternal life will be lived in new creation in the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus Christ ascends to the Father as a resurrected man, he enters the heavenly places as one of us. That's the point. As one commentator puts it, Christ did not enter to resume his pre-incarnate heavenly life. He entered to appear to the face of God on our behalf. Which is what then now brings us back to the end of verse 24 and the answer to the question, why? Why did Christ, our high priest, enter heaven itself? Well, the pastor tells us, it was now to appear, or so that he might appear. This is the purpose of his entering now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. This language of appearing to the face of someone, which is literally how it's worded in Greek, that, that Christ now appears to the face of God. That language is sometimes used in non-biblical writings to describe official contexts, such as when one appears before a magistrate in a court setting. <laughs> which suggests, I think, that the point isn't just that Jesus showed up in heaven. It's that he came to appear before his Father on our behalf, you see. It's that something about his appearance meets with God's acceptance and favor, but not acceptance and favor for himself, at least not in the first place. Of course, God approves of what his son as Jesus has done. That will be made very clear in chapter 10. But the point here is that the acceptance and favor Jesus experiences upon entering heaven and appearing to the face of his father is ours, brothers and sisters. He does it on our behalf. Meaning what? Well, now, this is not a simple point to make, but it's worth it. I, I've said that I think verse 24 is the main point theologically of our passage, but notice the first word of verse 24. It's the word for. It's the word because, meaning because, which tells us that verse 24 is the reason why verse 23 is true. And what does verse 23 say? Verse 23 says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
Now, without going back into everything we talked about last week, the reference to these rites has to do, that has to do with purifying the copies of the heavenly things. That's talking about the old covenant sacrifices. Last week, we were focused on the blood of the old covenant. And if you glance above into verses 16 to 22, you just see that again. Verse 22 was the summary. The pastor concluded by saying, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Nearly everything about the first covenant was covered in blood at some point. The tent, the vessels used in worship, the book of the law itself, over and over again, blood was used to purify or to cleanse the things that are in the tabernacle. Why? Why, as the first part of verse 23 puts it, was it necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites? Now listen, the answer isn't because they were earthly things as opposed to heavenly things. This is part of why I spent all that time a moment ago on the point of the contrast between the two tents. The idea here is not that the things of the tabernacle had to be purified because somehow the earthly objects themselves were unacceptable. No. The issue was the sin of the people. The pastor refers to all the rites of the Old Covenant with his language here, but the pastor throughout Hebrews chapter 9 has also been focused quite often on the Day of Atonement. He is again focused on that in our passage this morning when he talks in verse 25 about the high priest entering the holy places every year. So listen carefully to the Day of Atonement text itself in Leviticus chapter 16 as we try now to understand why it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified. You can even turn there if you want. Leviticus chapter 16, listen to what the blood was for. Now in the instructions for the Day of Atonement, the high priest was to take the blood from the goat that had been presented as a sin offering and to sprinkle that blood on and in front of the atonement cover. And then Leviticus chapter 16, verse 16, continues like this. Thus he, the high priest, shall make atonement for the holy place. Note that. The atonement here is for the holy place, because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. Notice how the atonement in that part of Leviticus 16 is said explicitly to be for the holy place and for the tent of meeting, but that the reason those copies of the heavenly things have to be atoned for doesn't have anything to do with the things themselves. It's explicitly stated that it's because of the sins of the people. It's because the tabernacle was in the midst of their uncleannesses. You see it again in verse 18 of Leviticus 16. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. 
and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it. Why? End of verse 19. What is he doing? He was cleansing it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. Do you hear that connection? The need for purification of the tabernacle had to do with its association with a sinful people, not its earthly or non-heavenly character. As one commentator explains, this holy space was made fit for continued interaction between God and his people by sacrifices that addressed the problem of sin. So can you see? If it was necessary for that to happen, when what we're talking about is the copies of the heavenly things, can you see what would be required when we're now talking about the heavenly things themselves? Well, it's going to take better sacrifices than these to deal with the actual problem. I like how one author puts it when he says this, quote, it was their sins. It was their sins that formed a barrier that prevented them from coming into God's presence and exposed them to his wrath. If sin erected a barrier forbidding entrance into a sanctuary that was a pattern, how much more did it bar the way into the true sanctuary in which God dwells by cleansing the heavenly sanctuary of the barrier erected by sin? Christ has inaugurated his ministry as high priest at God's right hand in that sanctuary. When God's people look toward him, they no longer face the barrier of their sin, but find their high priest through whom their consciences are cleansed. Yes, because what is it that's ultimately required for the heavenly things themselves to be purified? It's that the blood of Jesus Christ be sprinkled not on pieces of actual heavenly furniture, we are not supposed to be imagining here Jesus literally bringing his blood, as the high priest did in the tabernacle, into the heavenly places and then sprinkling it on things there. No, that would suggest the problem hasn't actually been dealt with when it has been now dealt with. What's needed for the heavenly things themselves to be made ready for their intended purpose as the dwelling place of God with man is that the blood of Christ is sprinkled on us, brothers and sisters. Everywhere in the surrounding context of Hebrews, this is what the pastor says is the point. Hebrews 9 verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Chapter 10 verse 2, the blood of animal sacrifices cannot make perfect those who draw near, the pastor reasons, because, chapter 10, verse 2, otherwise they would have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed, which they weren't, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. The blood of animals didn't do that. 
Jesus' blood does. Chapter 10, verse 14, by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And clearest of all, I think, chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What's purified by the blood of Jesus is us, dear friends, because that's the only way that you and I will ever go where our forerunner already has the holy places, heaven itself. Christ has entered now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That feels like it should be the end of the sermon. You might be wishing it were the end of the sermon, but... <laughs> It's not the end of the text, so let me move now quickly through verses 25 to 28 with you. These are some of the greatest verses in Hebrews. I don't want to just skip over them. In verses 25 to 28, the pastor now moves from where our high priest is now in heaven itself. He moves us back to the beginning of history and the centrality of the Son's incarnation within it. And then he moves us forward to the second coming and the new creation to come, because our high priest, having entered heaven itself, shows us the meaning of all of history. In other words, look with me at verse 25. Nor was it, that is, Christ's entrance into heaven, that was not to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year, there meaning the earthly holy places, the tabernacle or the temple, where on the day of atonement every year the high priest would enter with blood not his own, because it was the blood of an animal sacrifice, as we read about earlier in Leviticus 16. The point is, Christ's entrance into the heavenly sanctuary isn't like that. Why not? Verse 26, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Why? Because from Genesis 3 on, it's sin that's the problem. And there has always only ever been one answer to that problem. The cross of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. I've said this before. The cross wasn't plan B, brothers and sisters. It was always plan A. The death of Jesus Christ was always how the faithful received forgiveness of their sins, even if they couldn't have fully understood that. I don't know precisely what details were revealed to him, but I contend that the pattern shown to Moses on the mountain was that of an already completed offering. If the repetition of that offering had been necessary, then Christ, who has existed since before the foundation of the world, would have had to offer himself in death many times over. And we know for a fact that, that has, he has not had to do. The end of verse 26, but as it is, the pastor says, he has appeared once for all meaning for all time, I think. Actually, the Greek just says once. He has appeared once. 
at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Three rapid comments to make on that verse. First, the appearance there in verse 26 is the incarnation. It's not the same appearance that you read about in verse 24, the one of our high priest appearing before God in heaven. Most English versions do translate those two points with the same word, but the term that's translated appearance in verse 24 is not the same as the term that's translated appearance in verse 26. We already discussed the nuance of the appearance of Christ our high priest in heaven in verse 24. The appearance we're talking about in verse 26, this is the appearance of John chapter 1 verse 14. This time it is about the fact that the Son of God shows up. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Second rapid comment, the end of the ages language here has the sense of the climax of history, not strictly speaking the end of time chronologically. It's the decisive point of history. It's when God's redemptive plan comes into full focus. As one commentator puts it, Christ himself has brought the ages to their God-intended consummation and climax. Many had longed for the time when sin would be destroyed. Christ's coming has made that deliverance a reality. In these last days, our author began the book of Hebrews, God has spoken to us by his Son. Which is why, third rapid comment, the pastor makes it clear that the purpose of the Son of God becoming a man was from the beginning to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The pastor will have much more to say about the intention of the pre-incarnate Son of God for us in chapter 10, he came to do his Father's will, but that's for next time. In this context, just observe once again that the purpose of the blood of Christ on our high priest is to put away sin. This is what verse 23's better sacrifices is all about. This is what purifies the heavenly things themselves. Christ has done away with sin. Literally, he's annulled it, canceled it, removed it, which is why Christ's sacrifice is the basis for his entrance into the heavenly sanctuary. As the pastor put it way back in chapter 1, verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It was for the abolition of sin that Christ appeared in the flesh. It is because of his accomplishment of that that he is crowned with glory and honor. And so having reached back to the foundation of the world and brought us to history's climactic moment, the pastor concludes by focusing our attention on the future which must be determined by it. The Son of God became a man, verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ. Having been offered once to bear the sins of many, 
a, a crystal clear reference there to the suffering servant passage of Isaiah chapter 53. We have no time to go there now. So Christ will appear a second time not to deal with sin, because by now it's clear that there's nothing more to be done about it, right? Not to deal with sin, but to save those to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ's second coming is to bring final salvation for his people. And so it is the ultimate proof that his sacrifice was once for all, unrepeatable because it's absolutely sufficient. Sin has been done away with. Its history is past. No sin of mine. And no sin of yours, dear friend, even today's or even tomorrow's is in the future respective to Christ's once for all offering. Sin has no future, but we do. Jesus said in John 14, verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. What greater hope could we ever have than that? Which is why, once again, the pastor would have us persevere. Salvation is for those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's not a description of passive inactivity. It's a summons to active faithfulness for yet a little while. And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. Faith rooted in the past, but looking always to the future, we live obediently in the present. Like Abraham and the faithful who came after him, we must recognize that here we have no abiding city. We seek the city that is to come, always confessing its reality, always living in its light. We are those who look forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. As it is said of the faithful, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, may it be said also of us who eagerly wait for the second coming of our great high priest. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.